talked about how God's foreknowledge, his omniscience, implies the predetermination of all things, his omnipotence, which is about God's power. So that's what we're going to be talking about today. So let's uh, open our, in prayer. Our Father, we thank you for another opportunity to focus our attention on you and your attributes. So this morning, we ask you to help us to understand that you have revealed exactly what we need to know about you in Scripture, that you are the Lord of all things, that your transcendence and purpose are often above our understanding. Nevertheless, Lord, help us to grasp these things which you have revealed as we study you this morning. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. So we're talking about power today, and this is number one on your handout. This is the attribute of God's omnipotence in his being almighty and all-powerful. Omnipotence in Latin, omni means all, and potence means power. The word means all-powerful and refers to the fact that God's power is infinite, infinite and unlimited. God has the power to do all he wills to do. He has both the resources and the ability to work his will in every circumstance in the universe. To say that God is omnipotent, however, doesn't mean that he has the power to contradict his own nature. You know, to people will often ask, say, well, God can make a rock so big he can't lift it? Or can God make a square circle? Those are contradictions to God's nature. So ordinarily, the way in which we would try to describe power is to describe it by comparing it to something else you're familiar with. So since I was in the, the natural gas business, I would tell you that one cubic foot of natural gas has the power of a thousand kitchen matches. And science tells us that a nuclear warhead has one millionth the power of an explosion on the surface of the sun. And the sun has one billionth of the power of an exploding supernova. And this is number two in your handout. So how do we describe the power of God? Do we say his power is the power of a million supernovas or a billion billion supernovas? God is not at the top of the scale. He's never been on this scale. So he's not even off this scale because he utterly transcends scales. Psalm 62.11 tells us power belongs to God. This means not that God has more power than anything or anyone else, but that anyone or anything else that has even an atom of power has it because God has delegated God has delegated it to them. God has all the power, all the power. So the doctrine of omnipotence is assumed everywhere in the Bible. You might find, uh, easily find 500 verses that either teach omnipotence implicitly or assume it. Although the word is not found in our modern translations, the concept might be to be assumed on every page of the Bible. And this is number three in your handout. Omnipotence is identical in meaning with the more familiar word almighty. This word occurs often in our English Bible and is never used of anyone but God. 
God alone is almighty. Revelation 11:17 says, "We give thanks to you, Lord God almighty, who is, who was, for you have taken your great power, your great power and begun to reign." So God possesses what no creature can, an incomprehensible plenitude of power, a potency which is absolute. And since God is also infinite, whatever he has must be without limit. Therefore, God has limitless power. He is omnipotent. God's omniscience, from our lesson last week, grows out of his omnipotence. God is not all-knowing simply because he has applied his superior intellect to a study of the universe and all its contents. Rather, God knows all because he created all and he has willed all. We often refer to God's plan as his eternal decree. We're going to talk a little bit more about that in a minute. God has planned or decreed all things and they take place as he has ordained them. And this is number four in your handout. As sovereign ruler of the universe, God controls everything. Sovereign means possessing supreme, unlimited, unlimited, unrestricted power, independent and of and unlimited by any other thing. Sovereignty and omnipotence go together. One cannot exist without the other. To reign, God must have power. And to reign sovereignly, he must have all power. And that's what omnipotence means, having all power. Now, when one thinks of the topics that creates friction amongst Christians, the subject of divine sovereignty is probably high on the list. And we touched on this in last week's lesson on God's omniscience. It, omniscience. It's sometimes supposed by Arminians that God knows the future, but does not control it. That he upholds the world, but does not intervene in it. Or that he gives general direction, but is not concerned with detail. So there's a lot of friction, especially if you have any Armenian friends or relatives, which we, I'm sure we all do. In fact, most of us probably came from an Armenian background. I know I did. So when, um, and this is number five on your handout, the Bible rules out all limitations of God's power and sovereignty. God is absolutely sovereign, but his sovereignty never functions in such a way that human responsibility is curtailed. Human responsibility is not curtailed, minimized, or mitigated. And you remember last week when we talked about the doctrine of compatibilism. Who remembers the opposite of compatibilism? Nobody. You weren't paying very good attention. We have compatible free will, and we have libertarian free will. Very good. Someone got it. Okay. So when we talked about compatibilism, God is sovereign, and human beings are morally responsible. So when we say compatible, that those two doctrines are compatible. Charles Haddon Spurgeon was once asked if he could reconcile those two truths to each other, sovereignty and human responsibility. And he said, I wouldn't try. I never reconcile friends. 
And this is number six on your handout. Sorry, you got a lot of stuff on your handout today. I just thought there was so much stuff. I just wanted to make sure you had down on paper. So I know it's a lot. This is number six. God's sovereignty is the attribute by which he rules his entire creation, including human choices. Choices. And to be sovereign, God must be all-knowing, all-powerful, and absolutely free. And the reasons are these. Were there even one iota of, of knowledge, however small, unknown to God, his rule would break down at that point. To be over, Lord over all creation, he must possess all knowledge. And if God were lacking one infinitesimal modicum of power, that lack would end his reign and undo his kingdom. That one stray atom of power would belong to someone else, and God would be a limited ruler and hence not sovereign. Everybody good with that? I'm trying to be very explicit here. Furthermore, to continue what's on your handout, his sovereignty requires that he be absolutely free, which means simply that he must be free to do whatever he wills to do, anywhere, at any time, to carry out his eternal purpose in every single detail without interference. Were he less than free, he would be less than sovereign. So an example of that is, God is not waiting for people to make a decision for him before he can make a decision for the people. That would mean God's not free, okay? So the biblical evidence is very substantial. In fact, everything I'm teaching here today, and the, the biblical evidence is just incredibly massive. For example, we see in Psalm 115, 2 and 3, which says, Why did the nations say, Where is their God? Our God is in heaven. He does whatever he pleases. Or Isaiah 45, 6 to 7, which says, I am the Lord, and there is no other. I form the light and create darkness. I bring prosperity and create disaster. I, the Lord, do all those things. Or Lamentations 3, 37 to 38, which says, Who can speak and have it happened if the Lord has not decreed it? Is it not from the mouth of the Most High Lord that both calamities and good things come? So what we mean by the sovereignty of God is His absolute right, power, and intention to govern all things according to the counsel of his will without influence from outside of his will. Does that kind of ring a bell to any doctrines we've talked about? God's a seity. He is independent. He's self-contained. Huh? He is ah-say. Thank you. Okay, so let's talk a little bit about sovereignty and salvation. And this is number seven on your handout. We must regard God as the determine, determining sovereign cause of our salvation or we can't regard God as sovereign in all things. We see this in verses like John 17, 1-2, which says, When Jesus had spoken these words, he lifted up his eyes to heaven and said, Father, the hour has come. Glorify your Son that the Son may glorify you. Since you have given him authority over all flesh to give eternal life to all whom you have given him. 
So if we don't exalt God as sovereign and sovereign in all things, including the salvation of his people, then we, un, well, actually, we knowingly usurp the glory due his name. And what happens in the Christian world if you don't, don't give attention to the sovereignty of God? Human sovereignty rushes in to take God's true place. So when you have human beings become, becoming sovereign in their own minds in a variety of ways, theologically, we become the ones who elect God rather than God electing us. So now let's talk about providence. Most Christians I know speak of providence when something happens to them that is both very good and very unusual, you know, like when someone appears to fix your tire and you reach your meeting exactly on time or when you fear you're going to miss your rent payment and a check for precisely the amount you need mysteriously arrives in the mail or when you pray for the healing of a loved one and shortly later you find a medical treatment that succeeds when all else has failed and these things do happen and when they do uh, happen the word providence often occurs in our tongues so providence often becomes the Christian alternative to luck so when someone says good luck some Christians might remark we don't believe in luck only in God's providence luck is something impersonal a, a kind of fate or chance providence however is the hand of our loving God at work in fact you'll often hear at Spring Meadows that we don't have potlucks we have pot providence and this is number eight on your handout providence says the Heidelberg Catechism in number 27 is the almighty and everywhere present power of God power of God whereby as it were by his hand he upholds and governs heaven earth and all creatures so that herbs and grass rain and drought fruitful and barren years meat and drink health and sickness riches and poverty all things in fact come to us not by chance but from his fatherly hand providence is the care exercised by God over his creation that God provides okay providence and the word provide both come from the same Latin roots pro and video to see before so God created all things ex nihilo and he sustains them in their being at each moment this is number nine on your handout providence says whatever God's ordains whatever God ordains must be but the wisdom of God never ordains anything without a purpose everything in this world is working for some great end it's the way God works out his plan his decree in time and space God governs his creation intentionally and meticulously directing the minutest details of the universe with the highest end in mind his own glory so providence is an expression of the creatorship of God the Lord governs his creation to the praise of his glory that's what it's all about really you know when we talked about God being jealous as an attribute God is glorious and he wants to be known as glorious okay all events whether they are instances of laws of nature or of human choices or of unforeseen happenings or miracles 
and including the fall itself, are all in the direct control of God. And the story of the Old Testament is nothing if not a story of divine providence. On every page, in every promise, behind every prophecy is the sure hand of God. And this is number 10 on your handout. God sustains all things, directs all things, plans all things, ordains all things, superintends all things, and works all things after the counsel of his will. The doctrine of divine providence is the soundtrack. It's the soundtrack to scripture. It's everywhere present. Even if you don't know it's there, man, it's the soundtrack. It's the, the, that theme that runs all through scripture, okay? And this is number 11 on your handout. God the Almighty reigns in all the affairs of creation. And by the way, the, the biblical evidence for this stuff is massive. It's huge. I mean, you could go on for hours, okay? He rules the affairs of nations, the flight of birds. He gives rain and takes rain. He gives life and he takes life. He governs the roll of dice. Man, that's pretty amazing living in Las Vegas, huh? You know, when they were trying to figure out who Judas's replacement was going to be and they rolled dice to see, oh, it's Matthias. Uh, we see it in the rise of kings. Everything serves Everything serves, willingly or not, the purpose of him who works all things according to the counsel of his will, as Ephesians 1.11 says. So not only does God reign in all the affairs of men, and not only is his providence sometimes hard and bitter, but in all his works, his purposes are for the good and the greater happiness of his people. There are no accidents in your life. Nothing has been left to chance. The current pandemic, every economic turndown, every phone call in the middle of the night, every oncology report that has been sent to us from the God who sees all things, plans all things, and loves us more than we can know. And as Christians, we often reflect upon questions of providence when we begin to realize the grandness of what we are attempting. We're pondering God's activity. And for all the questions concerning God's providence, the why question is where the reflections end. And this is number 12 on your handout. Reformed theologian Paul Helm puts it like this. What is impossible for us to do is to provide an intellectually satisfying answer to the why question. Why? For asking such a question can only call for the answer because God willed it to be so. And to the subsequent question, well, why did God will it to be so? There is no further illuminating answer. This is one reason that the pattern of divine providence will, in this life at least, always be a mystery. In dealing with the providence of God, therefore, we are dealing with matters of ultimate significance for which there is no further explanation. This doesn't mean that God is arbitrary or capricious in his dealings with the created universe. And so, unsatisfactory though it may be, we must rest content with the ultimate reference to the will of God. The doctrine of providence teaches Christians that they are never in the grip of blind fortune, chance, or luck, or fate. Everything that happens is divinely planned. 
This is number 13 on your handout. As we noted earlier, part of God's providence are his decrees. To decree means to ordain, to appoint, to arrange, to prepare. God brings all things to pass according to his eternal plans, his decrees. God's decrees foreordain, and his providence brings them into actuality. Get the relationship there? God decrees, providence makes it happen. Uh, we see this like uh, in Acts 13.48 where it says, And many as were ordained to eternal life believed. See, they were ordained. That's the decree. They believed. That's providence in play. This is number 14 on your handout. This is from the Westminster Confession of Faith 5.2. Although in relation to the foreknowledge and decree of God, the first cause, all things come to pass immutably and infallibly. Yet, by the same providence, he orders them to fall out according to the nature of second causes, either necessarily, freely, or contingently. John Calvin said, God's providence doesn't always meet us in its naked form, primary causes. But God clothes it with the means employed, those secondary causes used by God to accomplish his will on earth. So God is the first cause behind all secondary causes. So what is a first cause or a second cause? And in rough terms, you can think of a row of dominoes. And the person who sets the dominoes up and then pushes the first one is the first cause. Creatures do what they do because God decreed what he decreed. He is the first cause. That's clear teaching of, I mean, massive portions of Scripture like Exodus 9 when they were, the plagues were hitting Egypt. Or Romans 9. Or in Job, Job 38, okay? We see God using primary causes and secondary causes. Now, it's not as if God pushes the first domino and then walks away. Nope. God is actively and mysteriously working through, in, and with his creatures to accomplish his good purposes. God ordains not merely the ends, but also the means. So God uses what the confession calls secondary causes. And what are they? A secondary cause is a created thing. Any domino downstream of that first domino. And our salvation is an example of God using second causes to accomplish his end dictated by the first or primary cause. God willed from all eternity that each of his elect will come to faith. Where it happens and when it happens. This is the first cause. And then he uses secondary causes like the foolishness of, a preach, of preaching to accomplish his plan which is dictated by that first cause. So Reformed, everybody good with that? Any questions? Okay. This is number 15 on your handout. Reformed theologians have always made clear there's a difference between the role of God in ordaining what comes to pass and the role of human agency in actually and voluntarily performing the ordained action. 
God granted us a genuine power to will our actions, which is sufficient to secure our moral responsibility. For example, Herod and Pontius Pilate conspired against Jesus. That was the secondary cause. In accordance with divine predestination, the first cause, but their conspiracy was still wicked and culpable. And you can see that in Acts 4, 25 to 28. Or another good example is prayer. Prayer is a secondary cause. Uh, prayer changes things, but not persuading the Lord to change his mind because it is the, the divinely appointed means by which God fulfills his eternal purpose, the primary cause. And he desires our petitions because they inherently recognize his sovereignty over all things. And as we discussed last week, Arminians say that God's foreordination is based on his foreknowledge. The Calvinist wouldn't deny that, but we would go on a little bit further and point out that foreknowledge itself is based upon God's foreordination and decree. Okay, God's just not looking into the future. God made everything and appointed all things and ordained everything that happens. So there is, in God's mind, a reciprocity between foreknowledge and foreordination. Neither is simply prior to the other. They're, both, they're like two sides of the same coin. And this is number 16 on your handout. Predestination is the decree, is the decree of God by which he has from eternity past unchangeably appointed or determined whatever comes to pass. And it's particularly used to denote the foreordination, foreordained, the foreordination of humans to everlasting happiness or misery and is part of the unchangeable plan of an unchangeable God. In regards to salvation, predestination simply means God chose you first, and if he didn't choose you first, you never would have chosen him. Salvation is of the Lord. Salvation is a work of God from beginning to end. Our choice is a free choice, but it's made possible only by God's decree and his spirit enabling us to believe and be saved. God has determined beforehand to affectionately set apart certain, certain people, but not as a result of their decisions like we see in Romans 9, 11 and 13, which says, Jacob I loved, but Esau I hated. Though they were not yet born and had done neither good or bad in order that God's purpose of election might continue, not because of works, because of him who calls. In fact, the Bible teaches that God's grace and choosiness is free based on his gracious will alone. He's not waiting up there. Gosh, I wonder who's going to choose me. You know, his, his choosiness is free based on his gracious will alone. It's not influenced by the innate capacities or the spiritual desire or the religious merit or the foreseen faith of the people he sets apart. Romans 9.16 says, so then it depends not on human will or exertion, but on God who has mercy. Or Ephesians 2, 8 and 9. For by grace you have been saved through faith. And this is not your own doing. 
It is the gift of God, not a result of works, so that no one may boast. So when the moment comes, God providentially arranges the circumstances, all those secondary causes, so that we are irresistibly drawn to Jesus. He gives us a new heart, a new desire. And from that new desire, we freely choose the Lord. John 6.44 says, No one can come to me unless the Father who sent me draws him. So while we believe that God's grace is irresistible and flows from his electing love, we must be clear that this grace renews us from within. It does not coerce us from without. We're not coerced. And that's how, like last week when we were talking about com compatible free will. We have free will, but we only have free will to do that was, which is in our nature. And when God gives us a new nature, we now actually have the desire, okay? Um, he's not a puppet master pulling our strings so that we do what he wants apart from our own willing or doing. His will precedes our will, but it does not eradicate our will. Some people might say, well, sure, God's in charge of salvation, but what about all the evil of the world? We're going to get to that, just not yet. First, let's talk about sovereignty and man's responsibility. Reformed theology has maintained consistently that Scripture teaches both God's sovereignty and human responsibility, that they are compatible, the doctrine of compatibilism. That's what we talked about on your uh, answer number five in your handout. That God's sovereignty and human responsibility are, are true, no serious student scripture of Scripture could deny. How they can be true is beyond our capacity to understand. As Calvin put the matter, any attempt to unravel the mystery of predestination and human responsibility beyond Scripture is a seeking outside the way. He says, better to limp along this path. In other words, what Scripture tells us. Okay? We can't seek outside the way. So we can only know what God has determined to reveal to us. And as we discussed last week, theologians who embrace libertarian accounts of free will, the Arminians, say incorrectly that there is no way to reconcile human responsibility and God's sovereign knowledge of the future. And since they see no way to preserve moral responsibility without libertarian freedom, they have found it necessary to reduce their expectations about God's knowledge and his omnipotence. They say incorrectly, God does not have sovereignty over salvation. So they rob God of his omnipotence. And Arminians would also say he doesn't have sovereignty over his sin, that we're free will doers of good and free will doers of sin, okay? So let's talk a little bit about sin and evil. God has sovereign control of everything that comes to pass. God has ultimate control of all things, including sin and evil. This is number 17 on your handout. Westminster Confession of Faith 3.1 says, God from all eternity did by the most wise and holy counsel of his own will freely 
and unchangeably ordain whatsoever. I've spelled it for you here. That's a word we don't use a lot. Whatsoever comes to pass. That means everything. Yet, as thereby neither is God the author of sin, nor is violence offered to the will of creatures, nor is the liberty or the contingency of second causes taken away, but rather established. Uh, we might see this in verses like James 1.13, which says, Let no one say when he is tempted, I am be being tempted by God, for God cannot be tempted with evil, and he himself tempts no one. But each person is tempted when he is lured and enticed by his own desire. And for Christians, God says in 1 Corinthians 10.13, God will not let you be tempted beyond your ability, but with the temptation he will also provide the way of escape that you may be able to endure it. Okay, but what about all the evil in the world? Surely that falls outside his jurisdiction. That's what some would say. So let's talk about the problem of evil, okay? The problem of evil is still considered by many to be the strongest argument against Christianity. It's thought to be the Achilles heel of Christianity, the one thing that brings the whole thing crumbling down. This is number 18 on your handout. One of the reasons that the problem of evil is considered to be such a strong argument against Christianity is that it has such broad appeal. Unlike strictly metaphysical or phil philosophical arguments against God's existence, the problem of evil is one that's more intuitive, understood by virtually anyone, whether or not they are a philosopher. So when a loved one is going through suffering, it is asked, how could a loving God allow this? So you see how intuitive the problem of pain is. <coughs> And here's how philosophers and theologians typically set up the problem of evil. And this is number 19 of your, on your handout. Here's how the problem of evil, and you might see that abbreviated P-O-E, problem of evil. Here's how it's typically articulated. A, if an all-powerful and perfectly good God exists, then evil cannot. Okay? So I want you to take notice here. They're juxtaposing God's omnipotence and his omnibenevolence, his goodness, okay? And they say, if he's both, then evil can't. They say, B, there is evil in the world, and C, then therefore an all-powerful and perfectly good God does not exist. And when they say evil here, it's either understood as moral evil like sin, or natural evil, like harm caused by impersonal forces of nature, like earthquakes, or plague, or sickness. And by the way, you might see that, that little um, articulation of problem of evil. It's actually called a syllogism. You might see that articulated in five points. God is perfectly good. God is all-powerful. There is evil in the world, therefore. You, see, you might see five points, but it's always those same two things. They're always contrasting his goodness with his omnipotence. Now, two approaches are often offered by Christians 
in response to the problem of evil. And by the way, that should have been on your handout. Eh? Before number 20, there's two approaches often offered by Christians. So the, the first approach, this is number 20 on your handout, is to argue that premise A that we just saw is false by showing God's good reasons for permitting evil. It's called the way of theodicy. I'm teaching you a new word here today. Maybe you've not heard of that. Theodicy, which means God justification from the Greek for theo and whatever that is, diakos or whatever, for meaning justice. A theodicy is an attempt to justify, to justify and vindicate God for the presence of evil in the world. And Christians have offered countless theodicies over the centuries, but today we're only going to look at two of them. And this is number 21 on your handout. And this is, by the way, probably the most popular theodicy, and you'll see why in a second. It's one I don't agree with, but you'll see why. The first theodicy we will review is known as the free will theodicy, which appeals to human freedom and places a high premium on self-determination. Does that sound familiar? Yeah, we looked at this last week in the Arminian view of libertarian free will. Arminians hold to two contradictory propositions. God is omniscient, and the future is contingent, subject to chance. Okay? So therefore, in this theodicy, God is off the hook. People would say, God doesn't have that power, man. He doesn't have the power over salvation. He doesn't have power over evil. Therefore, God is not responsible for the evil you're complaining about. That's one of the re this is a real cop-out, and it's not scriptural at all, okay? Um, God is not, he's off the hook. He's not to blame for evil since he knows about the future, but he doesn't control or ordain it. And we rejected this doctrine last week. Because preserving libertarian human freedom to safeguard human responsibility does not provide a sufficient motive for overturning our biblical understanding of God's decrees, providence, and omnipotence. And it's all philosophically based. It's not, it's not scriptural based. The second theodicy, this is number 22 in your handout, we'll look at is known as the greater good theodicy. The greater good theodicy argues that the evil, pain, and suffering in God's world play a necessary role in bringing about greater goods that could not be brought about otherwise. That God has promised to work all things for good. That all providence is working to a great and beautiful end. That all suffering has a purpose. And that there is no pointless and unproductive evil from God's perspective. This is the view thought by many in the reform camp to be the only theodicy that is biblically based. Biblically based. And let me tell you, the amount of scripture is overwhelming. It's supported by verses like Genesis 50:20, which says, As for you, you meant evil against me, but God meant it for good. Who knows what good God meant when he says Joseph brothers were being evil. What was the good that came of that? Huh? Yeah, people were fed. That was the good, okay? 
So usually, Scripture tells us oftentimes what is the good that came from evil. Okay, another, another example is, is Acts 2.23, where the Apostle Peter says, Christ was delivered over by the predetermined plan of God. Well, gosh, what was the good that came from that? Salvation, okay? And then we see verses like Romans 8.28. It says, all things, all things work together for good. Now, God doesn't tell us um, what good is going to come from every evil, whether it's sin or sickness. Um, so the second approach, is that a number on yours? Yeah, 23. The second approach, which is not a theodicy, is to argue that premise A is wrong because God's ways are inscrutable. If you can see that, I spelled it for you here. Actually, I spelled it wrong. Gosh, now I don't have to have Bob coming up and telling me I spelled it wrong. I think that's right. To conclude that God must have a good reason and he has chosen not to reveal it to us. That we just cannot grasp God's knowledge, the complexity of his plans, or the deep nature of the good he aims at in providence, that God himself is incomprehensible. Inscrutable means not subject to scrutiny. That there are things that are inscrutable God does that our minds are unable to comprehend. So for example, in the middle of Job's suffering, when he tells God that it's time to give answers, God essentially tells Job he doesn't have the right to question his providence and inscrutability. And God never does reveal to Job why he suffered. And you know how Job responds? He says, I know that you can do all things, and no purpose of yours can be thwarted. Therefore, I have uttered what I did not understand, things too wonderful for me which I did not know. So the theme of divine inscrutability probably works better than insensitively offering God's good reasons to those who suffer when they're in the middle of a crisis. And I'm sure each of us has experienced insensitivity from a male, well-meaning Christian. This is number 24 in your handout. In the end, all things come back to the glory of God. We simply don't know what his reason is for various specific events or the way they fit into the broader tapestry of the triune God's purposes, his purposes for history. We are finite, small, and too sinful to expect to have that kind of comprehensive knowledge. That said, we view all things in light of God's work in the cross, in the resurrection, and the world to come. You notice none of these, those, those theodicies or anything we talked about talked about heaven. That's the thing we need to think about. Romans 8.32 says, He who did not spare his own son, but gave him up for us all, how will he not also with him graciously give us all things? Because of that, we know our good God is loving and powerful and does have purposes in all of human history and even the darkest and most opaque of our trials. And these are purposes that if we knew all that God knows, if we were as good as God is and saw all that he sees, 
we would see that he's right to allow all that he has and redeem it in all the ways that he eventually will. This is number 28 or 25 on your handout from Tim Keller. He says, if we again ask the question, why does God allow evil and suffering to continue? And we look at the cross of Jesus, we still don't know what the answer is. However, we know what the answer isn't. It can't be that he doesn't love us. It can't be that he is indifferent or detached from our condition. God takes our misery and suffering so seriously that he was willing to take it on himself. himself. So if we embrace the Christian teaching that Jesus is God and that he went to the cross, then we have deep consolation and strength to face the brutalities of life on this earth. And that's why we sing hymns like, It is well with my soul. If, if you don't know the background, you should go check it out. It's, it's pretty amazing. I love that hymn. I highly encourage you to check it. I'm going to end on John 16, that says, Jesus says, In the world you will have tribulation, but take heart. I have overcome the world. So Jesus is implying there, there is a world to come. Uh, and it is a better world. That's what I got. Any questions? Man. I can't believe I've taught this complicated subject so well. <laughs> Can we get a mic microphone over here? Got time for maybe one question, maybe two, so... Oh, yeah, hit me after the lesson. Okay, this is, this is really what Reformed Chris. Did you have a question over here? No? Oh, Phil, I'm, yeah, catch me afterwards. All right, let's close in prayer. Our Father, you are the Lord of pain and suffering and, and all of our sin. We ask that you would give us assurance that someday we will understand why. Assurance that you will transform all of our earthly sorrows into the joy of heavenly gain. We pray in Jesus' name, amen.